Welcome to Space Waves. I'm JT Angstrom with Freight Waves. Uh, joining me today is a special guest. He goes by the name of Darren McKnight. He is a technical director and space detective at Centauri Corp. Darren, it's a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you, looking forward to it. Yeah, same here. Now I have, I have a, a little bit on your background. Um, I looked at your bio and to provide some context for the group, uh, for the audience to who we're speaking with, you have a very impressive background. And so you lead the, the teams for space systems, predictive awareness uh, for infectious disease outbreaks, and orbital, orbital debris and workforce productivity for Centauri Corp. So that's, a, that's a large span of control and a, a lot of different things yeah. to be working on. But not surprisingly, uh, given your, your, your background prior to that, you're on the International Academy of Aeronautics Space Debris Committee. You're active in position paper development and selection of symposia paper and the execution of the annual International Astronautical Congress. In addition to that, you've co-authored five books. You've authored over 100 technical papers and presented them in 16 countries. It's a, I'd say it's safe to say you're pretty deep in the space, pun intended. So welcome to Space Waves. Thank you, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. And so it's great to have you join us. It, we spoke uh, prior to this, and you know you have a phenomenal background in the space and a, and a great mind, uh, broadly speaking. W I would love to kick off to just hear a little bit about what you've been up to and what you think about the industry as a whole right now, how we have evolved in the in the short term, and then maybe after that we'll dive in kind of the longer term. But sort of, what are you seeing right now as being on the cutting edge, and what's keeping your mind really active? So, JT, what I think is important for people looking at space right now is to make sure you don't get um, sort of fixated on what everybody's talking about, right? Like like most everything, it's sort of the counterintuitive thing that, sort of, that comes out of left field that surprises you. So we're talking about constellations and commercial space and, and all the new space. The problem is it's old space that's going to kill new space if we're not careful. What I mean by that is there there are remnants of 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 uh, space operations from the Cold War that may actually be the biggest hurdle for these new constellations to to exist and thrive and and proliferate over time. And I think a lot of people don't realize that everybody's sort of looking in the two or three year time span, but you had to look back look back decades to see what's really going to be causing a problem that might uh, make these these constellations that are being deployed not be as reliable and as revenue generating as we would like. Yeah, and that's unique. And, and I imagine that there's kind of two or three components to that, one of which being um, having those assets in outer space uh, can create collision risk on one hand. Uh, and on the other hand, the extraction or, or, or uh, control of their movement in space is probably pretty challenging. And so, yeah, so yeah, it's kind of all about it's all about risk, isn't it? You mentioned collision risk, and so current collision risk is important to minimize. We don't want to run into things. We don't want operational satellites to be hit by pieces of debris. And so, I'm not sure how how, how much people are aware, but you know, we have you know twenty thousand objects that we catalog and we track and reliably say where they're going to be on the next orbit in space right now. Unfortunately, only about a thousand of those are actually operational satellites, right? After that, rest of it's debris, and the debris may be anywhere from from 
um, fragments resulting from breakup events that occurred 20 years ago to, to rocket bodies the size of a big yellow school bus that are still orbiting the Earth at seven and a half kilometers per second, waiting for somebody to get in its way and create thousands more pieces of debris. So, right. so it's, it's a very daunting um, a process when you think about managing the risk. It's not just collision, but it's the future collisions. And if we go grab those objects, like you said, just grabbing them can be scary. Moving them through airspace and to the ground, you're not really eliminating risk. You're moving space risk to aviation risk to ground casualty risk. So there's no easy way out of, of this predicament we've sort of gotten ourselves into. Right, that, that's unique. And now you, you mentioned a few stats in there. You're, you're tracking 20,000 different orbital objects and only 1,000 of which, you know, 5% are, are active. Now, of, of the 20,000, do you have a view of what portion of perhaps total objects in outer space that represents? Is that fairly comprehensive or is there a portion of what's floating out there that perhaps you don't have visibility into? Yeah, yeah, actually, unfortunately, what you cannot see can kill you. So, so what we see are objects that are bigger than about the size of a softball in low Earth orbit and about the size of a beach ball in higher orbits. Unfortunately, something the size of a, of a pea could knock a satellite out. So the difference between a pea and a softball is a lot of objects. As a matter of fact, it's estimated to be on the order of 700,000 objects in low Earth orbit that are big enough to kill you, but we can't see. So when we see the 20,000 and we think, oh, great, we dodged that, we dodged that rocket body? Well, we, we didn't dodge the 700,000 lethal non-trackable debris that currently isn't in a catalog. But there's good news coming. There are a number of systems that are working to catalog those smaller objects as we speak. And that's good news. That's remarkable. So the, the largest portion of risk is the smallest objects, which are the, the, the most vast in numbers by far, and happen to be the ones that we have the least visibility into. And so. That's, that's, really, that's really interesting to think through. Now, how do you think about the systems for identification, which sounds like you're already working on? Very, how do you find peas in space? Yeah, so the way you find peas in space is you need to look at using radars that have a different wavelength. And so what's, what's what, and I, I think this is a technical audience here, UHF radars provide you a real good look at things about the size of a softball. But S-band radars, allow you to get down to on the order of uh, about uh, maybe a lima bean instead of a instead of a green bean okay so so a little bit very close to a, a centimeter or two centimeters inside about two centimeters in size so those are being deployed the, the u.s government is deploying one right now but there's also a commercial company called leo labs that are deploying have are deploying two of them and are planning on deploying four or five more of them in the next five years and that will for the first time provide a comprehensive look everything that can kill you. It's kind of like walking into a theater during flu season. You hear a guy cough and you hear somebody cough, but there are germs everywhere. You just can't see them now, so you don't fret about them. You don't know how to avoid them. Now we'll be able to get a better understanding of that as these new systems come on. That's very unique. And, and are these systems uh, terrestrial or are they, are they are they in space? They are terrestrial. Yeah, they're terrestrial. So they're terrestrial radars, and that allows you to get better power and also doesn't add to the collision risk itself, right? Because unfortunately, when you get some space-based applications, you got all kinds of resiliency issues and, 
to make them big and have the power they're big, which means they're a collision risk. And before you know it, they, they, it's nonsensical. So these are on the ground, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's very unique. And so in thinking through this, the, those pea-sized objects are, 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 are they man, what portion are, and I know we don't have a full catalog, but what portion are man-made versus are uh, a, uh, a resultant of you know, prior collisions and, and debris from, from you know, previous activities? Sure. Well, what, the way we talk about JT is anything that man launched is man-made, right? Now, whether or not it was accidental or on purpose, right? There are very few purposeful events in space, but these are all man-made objects. If you look at micrometeoroids that may be bigger than their natural, they don't stay in orbit around the Earth. So while there is a collision risk from natural debris that's, that's not man-made, you know, from comets and things like that, that that come that we go through, there's a one-time shot for those, right? So they just come through and 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 they're usually smaller in size. Unfortunately, the orbital debris, you get to roll the dice every time they orbit, right? So in a lower third, there's every 90 minutes you get to roll the dice again to see whether or not, you know, do, do you feel lucky, punk? You got another time for this thing to orbit. So that's the difference when you look at man-made, it's orbital and you you have this continuing risk. That's unique. And so as you think about launching a new satellite into space, how do you think about mitigating this risk, realizing that um, you can only see some portion of your risk objects and there's, there's a sea of, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a plethora of things you, uh, you can't see in space? Yeah, yeah well, the good, the good news is we know we have, there's some good physics-based things. I, I was also a physics professor um, at the Air Force Academy. So sometimes physics helps us, right? And so if you get to lower enough a low enough altitude, um, then these smaller objects are going to wash out very quickly. So, so while they exist, they're going to work their way down, but they accelerate as they come down because they're going to go through thicker and thicker parts of the atmosphere. So the first thing you can do is keep it to a lower altitude because then these smaller objects come through pretty quickly. right? So, so that's number one. Number two, you want to go where other people haven't gone. Unfortunately, that's not good for satellite systems because people want to go to sun synchronous orbit because it's unsynchronous. There's some benefit to it, right? So you either got to stay low or go high. So you know that's really what it comes down. Go high above where other people aren't, haven't been doing very much or stay low where the natural effects of atmospheric drag keeps that collision risk a little bit lower. That's remarkable. And so, and so the, the studies associated with these investigations um, for you and your space detectives, um, how do you think about effectively allocating the, the, the resource capital to most effectively uh, direct the studies to ensure that you're kind of getting the best uh, return on your, on your intellectual capital labor investment? JT, that's great, great question. There's really three ways in which people should be investing money, right? The first thing is space traffic management. We need to make sure that satellites that go into space have collision avoidance capability and they share their data so that they can say, hey, I see you coming. I know where you are. I can avoid each other, right? And they can avoid pieces of debris. Believe it or not, JT, right now, you don't have to have collision avoidance capability to launch into space. Think, would you put your kids out in the front on the front yard with a bike without a steering wheel? Why are we putting satellites in orbit that don't have collision avoidance capability? So the first thing is space traffic management, make people responsible. Number two, when we have mitigation guidelines. We say, if you launch a satellite, you have a responsibility that after you're operating, after 25 years, it should come down. 
25 years is a long time. Who came up with that number? Well, that was came up in, in the mid-1990s when we had less debris. We didn't have as capable um, space systems, right? We didn't have a, a capable propulsion systems. So 25 years seem reasonable. We have not adjusted that number. So we need to adjust that number and say, not only do you need to avoid collisions while you're operational by having collision avoidance, you also need, when you're done, come down within a year, come down within six months. You, you can't linger for 25 years. And then the third thing after space traffic management and debris mitigation is debris remediation. You need to go grab some of these objects. Just like it makes good sense not to litter on the highways, somebody's got to go adopt the, the highway and pick up the trash. We have remnants, and the remnants of the old space systems are actually much more massive than now. Many of the satellites now typically are several hundred kilograms in size. In low Earth orbit, we had things that were 3,000, 9,000 kilograms back in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. So the old hardware, not only is it up very high, it's very big, which means it has a lot of debris generating potential. So be responsible. Don't leave debris too long. Go clean up the stuff we already left. That's very, uh, that's very unique. And that, that's a great breakdown of how to think through your, your resource allocation and, and, and thought leadership in the space. Now, as we think about the, that development of intellectual capital and, and bringing talent up from high school, college, sort of, you know, through what is a, uh, a very intellectually rigorous field, how do you think about developing the right talent, how to source that talent, how to make sure the career paths ensure that we get to um, current and future boundaries of knowledge? Yeah, I, I, think, I think the key thing there is to get people excited about the fact that we don't know all the questions. So as being a space detective, thank you for, 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 for mentioning that, my job is not to answer all the questions, it's to ask the right questions. So I think we need to have, make sure we talk about engineering and science development in the curriculum to be able to look at open-ended problems, right? And be able to say, I don't know what I need to do, but I just know I need to understand the context, understand the factors, and maybe I'll come up with a new um, kind of solution. Was, I, I love working with college interns who are saying, I, I think I know how to go catch that lethal non-trackable debris. I think I know how to put a net around the satellite and drag it down. Love those kind of creative things. And so I think we've got to open the aperture a bit and don't give people a list of questions, give them a list of, of concerns and let them ask the right questions. That's wonderful. Well, uh, Darren, thank you very much for that rundown. Uh, this has been wonderful. I'm JT Angstrom with Freight Waves. Have a great day.